You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 250, The Mohawk Valley Raids. We last looked in on the Indian warfare in upstate New York back in episode 230. The Iroquois, under leaders like Loyalist John Johnson and Mohawk Chief Joseph Brandt, also known as Theondenega, had been terrorizing settlers in New York who sided with the Patriots. The Patriot leadership had forced all Loyalists to flee to Niagara or further north into Quebec Territory, or they would face arrest and property confiscation. Failure to swear allegiance to the new independent state government was grounds for such treatment. In addition to the Iroquois, many Loyalist New Yorkers of European descent also fled to Canada. Many of these formed Loyalist units, including Butler's Rangers, under the command of John Butler, and often led by his son, Walter Butler. The Rangers, the Iroquois, and other Loyalists waged a campaign attempting to destroy food and property, as well as capture or kill Patriots, in an attempt to get the Patriots to cede the region. These raids had already resulted in numerous massacres, including the Wyoming Valley Massacre and the Cherry Valley Massacre. Now, in response to these earlier raids, General Washington ordered an equally harsh response by the Continental Army. He ordered General Sullivan to take an army through the heart of Iroquois territory and visit devastation on all the Iroquois villages, other than the Oneida and a few others who had already cast their lot with the Patriots. Many of the Iroquois tribes attempted to remain neutral, but these neutral villages provided support to fellow Iroquois who were on raiding parties against Patriot homes and villages. The Continentals hoped that by burning these neutral Indian villages and destroying their food, that they would have no choice but to abandon the region entirely. And the Sullivan campaign did exactly that. As I've mentioned in other episodes, The winter of 1779 through 1780 was an exceptionally cold and snowy one. The Continental Army clung to bare survival at Morristown, New Jersey that winter. To the north, things were at least as bad, if not worse. As I said, the Sullivan Campaign had wiped out grain stores in New York and sent thousands of Iroquois refugees to the Niagara area, desperate to feed their families and find shelter in this particularly harsh winter. These joined thousands of other Loyalist refugees who had also already fled to New York and were also seeking assistance. More than 5,000 Iroquois, more than half of them women and children, had fled to Niagara with little more than the clothes on their backs. By October of 1779, these refugees were already consuming the food rations that would not have supported even a smaller number of people over the course of the winter. As fall pushed into winter, food became even scarcer. Mary Jameson, a former white captive who lived with the Seneca, 
wrote down her recollections of that hard winter years later. Quote, the snow fell about five feet deep and remained so for a long time, and the weather was extremely cold, so much indeed that almost all the game upon which the Indians depended for subsistence perished and reduced them almost to a state of starvation through that and three or four succeeding years. When the snow melted in the spring, the deer were found dead upon the ground in vast numbers, and other animals of every description perished from the cold also, and were found dead in multitudes. Many of our people barely escaped with their lives, and some actually died of hunger and freezing. Now, the British Governor-General, Frederick Haldeman, complained regularly to London over the winter that everyone was starving and that grain was almost impossible to find. Heavy snowfall and ice made it impossible to get any supplies to the refugees. In addition to the lack of food, there was nowhere near enough shelter for all the people. There were not enough tents, which, even if there were, would have been probably pretty inadequate for a brutal Canadian winter, where witnesses reported snowdrifts of five to eight feet. Many refugees attempted to build crude shelters from wood or stone, or to dig holes into the earth in order to avoid the brutal winds. The shelters were not close to adequate protection, and as a result, many hundreds died over the winter. Some simply starved or died from disease related to the lack of food, such as scurvy. Many others literally froze to death, living outside in the elements without winter clothing. Dr. James McCausland of the King's 8th Regiment made futile attempts to assist the many dying around him every day, but could do little more than report on the wide array of diseases that were killing people. By the time the first signs of spring thaw came around, there were not even enough healthy people to bury all the dead. Soldiers simply poured quicklime on the bodies and buried them in shallow mass graves in order to prevent the rotting corpses from killing even more people. Loyalist and Iroquois leaders, however, only saw the suffering as an incentive to redouble their efforts to take back Iroquois lands in New York the following spring. Of course, the leadership did not suffer nearly as much as the warriors and civilians. Many of the war chiefs lived as guests in the home of men like Johnson, Butler, or other prominent officials. Brant, who owned his own farm near Niagara, even found time to get married that winter. His wife, Catherine's father, had been George Grogan, a Pennsylvanian who lived on the frontier and who had even been with Washington when he made his first forays as a young man into the Ohio Valley. Catherine knew none of that, having been born years later. The 20-year-old woman had been mostly raised by her Mohawk mother and spoke little English. John Johnson had his own regiment drawn from local Tories. New York loyalist John Butler, still commanded Butler's Rangers, composed primarily of New York loyalists. Walter Butler, his son, had led the Rangers in the field. Joseph Brandt worked with several other war chiefs to keep the Iroquois prepared for a new offensive into New York. Also, in late 1779, Guy Johnson returned from London the British Indian agent for the region. Johnson also had authority to provide gifts to native warriors to encourage an active campaign against the New York Patriots. One of the targets that spring would be the Oneida homeland. 
The Oneida had solidly backed the Patriots. Their fellow Iroquois felt a particular betrayal by this and wanted to send a message. Even in late 1779, Brant was planning a raid on the Oneida villages. As he organized his raiding party, he captured three Oneida warriors near his camp near Niagara. Under interrogation, the Oneida revealed that they had been made aware of the planned attacks from a Cayuga refugee living near Niagara and that the Oneida war chiefs had sent them to spy on the would-be attackers. Realizing that he had lost the element of surprise, Brant called off the attack that fall. While the fierce winter storms limited any military activity over the winter, Tory and Iroquois leaders were determined to do something. By February, some of the worst snows had subsided. Brant and several hundred warriors held a war dance at Guy Johnson's home. Johnson supplied the warriors with snowshoes, blankets, and other supplies in hopes that they might conduct a winter campaign. The warriors set off, but the poor weather and difficult conditions led to much of the force falling ill. It also didn't help that there were no friendly villages along the way to provide supplies. The work of the Sullivan campaign the previous year had seen to that. Brant reported several weeks into the winter march that more than half of his war party was too sick to continue, but that he was continuing with about 200 warriors who were still able to march. Marching through the snow was slow going. One of their targets had been a group of three forts near Schoharie, New York, just south of Oneida Lands. Brant's warriors took all of March, arriving in Harper's Field a few miles away in the beginning of April. There, the attackers encountered a group of 12 local militia. They killed three and captured the remainder. The warriors wanted to kill these remaining prisoners, but Brant prevailed on them to send the captives back to Niagara. The prisoners told Brandt that there was a garrison of 300 Continental soldiers at Skohari. This was not true, but it dissuaded Brandt from launching an attack there. The warriors then burned Harper's Field and captured several more civilians. Brandt released one of the prisoners with a letter saying that he had heard that the Patriots were mistreating Loyalist prisoners and that he would return similar treatment on his prisoners if this did not change. The warriors built canoes to travel down the Delaware River, looking for food and looking to help any local Tories who remained in the region. They passed through Aquagua, which had been obliterated by the Sullivan campaign, with no people or buildings remaining there. Brant divided his already small force into raiding parties that could attack or capture isolated homes or villages in the region. One raiding party returned with only two of its members, saying that they had captured some prisoners, but that the prisoners escaped at night and killed the rest of the raiding party. The warriors hearing this wanted to kill all of their own prisoners, but once again, Brant talked them out of it. On April 24th, a war party of 79 Iroquois and two loyalists once again attacked the village of Cherry Valley, the scene of the 1778 massacre that had been a key trigger for the Sullivan campaign. The attackers at this time killed eight settlers outright and captured another 14. They burned all of the buildings that had survived the earlier attack or had been rebuilt and left no one living in the community. Unable to find sufficient food to survive, the warriors began marching back to Niagara with their prisoners. 
One account says that one of the prisoners was unable to keep up, so they killed and scalped him, leaving his body for the wolves. One of the killers teasily dangled this man's scalp to some of the other prisoners, including his grandsons. After a nearly three-month campaign, Brant's warriors returned to Niagara. Brant had to send word to Haldeman that he was returning with prisoners, and Haldeman had to use a pretext to get most of the Indians out of the area. Otherwise, he knew that these Indians would attack the prisoners. Sentiments were so hard after the devastating winter that even women and children would attack prisoners being marched into camp. Brant was not the only active Loyalist raider that spring. While Brant's campaign was still marching toward its targets, a Loyalist scout returned from Johnstown with word that the Patriots were planning to force all men of military age to enlist in militia companies to fight for the Patriots, or they would be sent to jail and have their homes confiscated. Haldeman suggested to Sir John Johnson that he should send a small contingent into the region and lead Loyalists who were still there back to join Loyalist regiments before they could be taken prisoner or forced to fight for the rebels. Johnson opted to take a much larger force of about 300 regulars and Loyalist militia from Montreal down Lake Champlain to Crown Point, near the ruins of Fort Ticonderoga. He also sent scouts ahead of his main force to warn the local Loyalists to be ready to move when he arrived. In doing all this, he managed to recruit more than 120 men for his battalion. With a force growing to nearly 500 men, including a fair number of Iroquois warriors, the force continued to march south, picking up recruits and burning the homes and farms of any patriots they encountered. Johnson's force arrived at a small village just north of his boyhood home of Johnstown on May 21st. There he divided his force, leading a portion to his boyhood home of Johnstown, with the other force moving east toward Conawaga. At around midnight on May 23rd, the two divisions entered Johnstown and Conawaga. The raiders looted and burned the homes of known patriots. They killed three patriot militiamen. One of the men killed was a militia captain, according to local lore, killed by an Indian that he knew and to whom he had shown great kindness in earlier times. Another home was that of militia colonel Frederick Vischer. The colonel was in his home with his mother and two brothers, and the men determined to defend their home to the last. After a brief but determined struggle, the raiders entered the home. They killed and scalped the men and tied their mother to a chair. Although the Indian attackers had thought they had killed Colonel Vischer, he managed to survive the initial attack and also managed to play dead while the Indians scalped him. An Indian warrior then noticed he was still alive and slit his throat with a knife. After a brief ransacking, the attackers set the home on fire leaving Mrs. Vischer tied to the chair inside the burning home. Amazingly, Colonel Vischer managed to survive having his throat slit as well. After the attacker left, he managed to pull his mother and his brother's bodies from the burning home. He also recovered from his wounds, which is the only reason that we have this story to tell. Similar attacks took place in many other homes in town, often leaving no survivors. The devastation would have been even worse had not Militia Major, a man named Van Vrack, managed to ride ahead of the raiders and warn many locals to flee their homes and escape into the woods. 
the raiders burned every building in Conagua, except for the church, killing many of the inhabitants, including nine elderly men over the age of 80. They did take some prisoners. As they continued to march, they looted and destroyed every building they encountered, taking what they could and killing any livestock or burning any property that they could not carry. Marching through a four-mile arc south of Kahnawaga, the attackers burned an estimated 120 buildings and burned literally tons of food. In response to these raids, New York Governor George Clinton quickly called out the militia, which joined up with a force of Continentals under the command of Colonel Goose von Schaake. This 800-man force quickly assembled and set off to capture Johnson's raiding parties. Johnson managed to slow the enemy by leaking the fact that Joseph Brandt and Butler's rangers were about to launch their own raid south of the Mohawk River. Several prisoners escaped and alerted the Patriots. This was a ruse. Brant and Butler were still back in Niagara, but this gave Johnson's raiders time to march north and avoid an encounter with a much larger enemy. The Loyalist raiders managed to make it back to Crown Point and embark on ships before Sheikh's army and a second army from New Hampshire, which had been assembled to cut off their escape, could arrive. This combined Patriot force of 1,700 men might have turned the raid into a British defeat. But the quick escape ahead of this force up Lake Champlain gave Johnson a great success. The Loyalists were far from finished with their attacks. In July, Joseph Brandt, in cooperation with British regulars, launched a raid on the Oneida who had remained allied with the Patriots. Brandt had convinced a small number of Oneida and Tuscarora to join the refugees at Niagara, threatening them with destruction if they refused. Some of these natives sought refuge at the Patriot-held Fort Stanwix. In June, a delegation of Mohawk warriors and Butler's rangers arrived at Oneida Castle, an entrenched area with high walls deep in Oneida territory. They attempted to get the Onondaga, Tuscarora, and Oneida, who were still there, to abandon their alliance and join the rest of the Iroquois at Niagara. Of the group, they managed to convince about 300 warriors to leave, but 90% of these were Onondaga or Tuscarora. On July 11th, Brant's Iroquois warriors and a small number of British regulars marched against those who had refused to join them. Among them were several dozen warriors who they had just forced to return to Niagara. These warriors were forced to show penance for their rebel tendencies by joining the punishing force that would lay waste to those who did not surrender. Brant's force came across about 400 Iroquois who, as I said, were taking refuge near Fort Stanwix. Most were able to flee into the fort, but some were captured and forced to return to Niagara. Brant's forces laid siege to the fort for a few days, but they really weren't prepared for a longer siege. The warriors just continued on, laying waste to any abandoned Oneida homes and villages they encountered, and of course they drove off horses, cattle, and burned crops. In early August, the raiders destroyed the Oneida village of Kanawaragari, and also the settlement of Kanojahari. Alert settlers became aware of the attack and managed to escape to Fort Plank. Branch raiders once again could not take the fort and were not prepared to besiege it. They destroyed the homes in the area, but were not able to kill or capture many of the inhabitants. They poured through the Skohari Valley, largely unopposed, 
laying waste to isolated farms and small villages, including the town of Vrumen, where they burned more than 20 homes. By the end of August, Brandt returned once again to Niagara with another devastating and successful raid behind him. Loyalist and Iroquois raids into New York were far from over. The raids would become even worse in the fall of 1780, but we're going to have to leave those for a future episode. Many of the Oneida who survived the raids became refugees among the Patriots, settling on land closer to Schenectady, where they hoped to remain out of range of future raids. The Mohawk Valley remained an armed encampment where small forts dotted the region every few miles. Nervous locals remained on edge, ready to seek the protection of the forts at a moment's notice. But they remained determined to defend the region. Next time, we're going to return to South Carolina, where we take a look at the Battle of Waxhaws. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and also to Robert Morris Circle supporters Lee Seam and Michael Mulhern. I'm also pleased to welcome a new member to the Robert Morris Circle, T.J. Walker. Welcome also to new standard bearers Lou Saga and Kyle Scarano all of you can look forward to receiving your first monthly magnet this month. Thanks also to Kyle Smith for a one-time gift via Venmo and Warren Platts for his support via PayPal. Always much appreciated. I'm still planning to go to History Camp Boston in August. For those of you who cannot make that trip, History Camp is also going to hold another online History Camp, what they call History Camp America. That will take place on November 5th. If you're inclined to sign up for that, you can use the coupon code AMREV22 and get a discount on your registration. This week, we covered the Mohawk Valley raids during the spring of 1780. I've made a couple of trips out to this area over the past couple of years. It's still a pretty lightly populated region, and many of the fort locations that existed during the Revolution are still there. Most of the forts were simple log structures and are either long gone or have been built into much larger buildings. At the time, they were designed as defenses against Indian raids, such as those described today. Not really larger attacks than an army would have made with an artillery. But this was a very much fought over piece of real estate for a great many years 
between the Loyalists, along with the Iroquois and a few British regulars, and the Patriot Militia, along with some backing of the Continental Army. It was a very high point of contention over a great many years, so there's a lot of really small skirmishes around there, and you can always read a lot about the history that's going on there. My book recommendation this week is a book called For Want of His Silver Plate, Sir John Johnson's Raid of May 1780, which, as you may guess, discusses the May 1780 raid that we discussed today. The book is by Gavin Watt. I've recommended one of Watt's other books about the St. Ledger expedition a few years ago. Watt is a Toronto-based writer who writes almost exclusively on upstate New York during the American Revolution. He released this book in 2018. Like many of his books, it's very short, well under 100 pages, but I recommend it because it gives the best coverage of this over any other book that's out there. Any other book that even covers this topic usually covers it in only a few pages as part of a larger book about other things. So if you want to read more about the spring 1780 raids, you're going to want to get a copy of For Want of His Silver Plate. As I record this, Amazon has exactly one overpriced copy of this book available. I'll include that link in case they may get more but this also gives me another opportunity to recommend the Fort Plain Museum Bookstore, which also carries copies of this book, and I might add, as a lower cost than Amazon. So I'll include links to both sources in my blog for this episode. Feel free to use either one. For my online recommendation, I'm recommending another book. This one's called War Out of Niagara, Walter Butler and the Tory Rangers by Howard Swiggett. Butler's Rangers, for me at least, is another really fascinating story within the American Revolution, and it's one that's probably often overlooked because they're loyalists and we in America tend to see them as the bad guys. But they are definitely very interesting characters, and I think there's a lot to say about them and what they did. Uh, This book was written in 1933. Since it is in the public domain, you can get a free e-copy of it on archive.org. As always, I've included direct links to the book on my blog and website. I also want to note that this week marks the fifth anniversary of my start of this podcast. I began this podcast back in July of 2017. Traditionally, I've taken a look at the growth of the podcast on its anniversary, and this year is no exception. You guys have downloaded this podcast about 3.8 million times. I'm hoping we can get to 4 million before Labor Day. I have listeners in all 50 states and in over 100 foreign countries. Not surprisingly, the U.S. accounts for the overwhelming number of my downloads, about 92%, but Canada, Britain, and Australia each account for between 1 and 2% of all downloads. In fifth place is our highest ranking non English speaking country, Germany. Now, in a state by state comparison, New York managed to win the top state for total downloads, beating out larger California, Texas, and Florida. When we compensate for population and compare state by state as a percentage of downloads per population of the state, the podcast remains most popular in D.C., which also held that top rank when we looked at it a year ago. Rounding out the states, 
Vermont beat out Massachusetts as the state where this podcast is most popular per population. Rounding out the top five are New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and New York. Once again, Hawaii remains in a distant last place. Now, sadly, this year I had to give up on my streak of releasing a new episode each and every week. I now release episodes every other week. I really wish I could go back to weekly so that we could continue making our way through the topic at a better pace, but alas, my day job prevents me from continuing at that pace. I will say, though, that my offer still stands. If I can get 300 Patreon supporters, I will quit my day job and devote myself full-time to this podcast. Given my growth rate over the past year, that doesn't seem too likely anytime soon. But if you guys get out there and recommend this podcast to your friends and get those numbers up, maybe we can kickstart that growth again and get closer to our goal. My question this week comes from Shane Layton, who asks... As a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, I'm keenly interested in the activities of the Continental Marines. We are taught at boot camp about the formation of the Corps and a landing in the Bahamas, but not much else in the Revolution. What actions were the Marines instrumental in? Well, Shane, the main landing in the Bahamas was probably the largest action taken during the war. I talked about that campaign way back in episode 84, the Marine Corps had been established only a short time earlier in Tun Tavern at Philadelphia. Major Samuel Nicholas became the first commandant and led the raid on Nassau. Following that raid, the British bottled up the Continental Navy in Rhode Island, which gave the Marines relatively little to do. Many of them served along the Delaware River, defending Philadelphia. Some of these Marines actually participated on Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware, and the attacks on Trenton and Princeton. There was a small Marine detachment that served on the ship, commanded by John Paul Jones, and they were most critical in his famous victory over the Serapis. A Marine detachment also assisted Spanish forces in securing New Orleans against a British threat. One of the final official acts of the Marines was to escort a treasure ship full of silver which France loaned to the U.S. to help found the Bank of North America, the first bank in the U.S. When the war ended, the Marine Corps, along with the Navy, was deemed too expensive and it was completely disbanded. Congress reestablished the U.S. Marine Corps in 1798 when it looked like the U.S. might be going to war with France. For those of you who are fans of marine history, I've added a t-shirt of Tun Tavern which is where the Marines were founded in 1775. You can find a link to my T Public website on the bottom of each blog episode and on my website. I have a wide variety of t-shirts available on all different aspects of the American Revolution. And if there's a t-shirt you'd like to see, just let me know. I'll see if I can come up with something for you. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. I'm always happy to answer your revolution-related questions. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution Podcast. 